This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased, and turn away his anger from him. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I understand that somebody has uh, collapsed upstairs. If there are any doctors, and I know there should be some in here, um, there might, uh, could, we're good? We're good. Okay. All right. We're good up there. Well, let me, let me pray and uh, pray um, for the person for whom that just happened as well, and we'll um, lend our, our prayers toward that end. So would you pray with me? Father, we want to ask for your mercy. And uh, for your care right now, we pray uh, for this gentleman. Uh, we pray that you would bring um, the right treatment, care, attention that's needed. I pray um, for uh, quick and complete uh, healing and all the attention that's needed and the help uh, that needs to be provided. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I guess the thing to do uh, maybe is to continue on here. I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do, but I'm going to take cues from folks who are going on. I'm seeing some nodding. Um, So signal me if we need to do something different, but I'm going to continue to that end. And uh, today we're starting a new series on uh, the seven deadly sins, uh, Lent begins on Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, normally uh, a time to consider what's wrong with the world, also a time to consider what's wrong with us. And uh, we've done a series on the seven deadly sins before. It's uh, been 10 years since we've done that. What's different about this one is that we're going to camp out uh, almost exclusively in the book of of Proverbs for the entire series. And just by way of introduction, a a little bit about the seven deadly sins. Uh, From the earliest days of Christianity, lists were made of the most common maladies, the chief cancers that keep people from what Jesus called the abundant life. And one of the earliest of these lists was compiled by a fourth century Egyptian monk named Evagrius. About 200 years after Evagrius, the theologian Gregory the Great Uh, trimmed that list to seven, and that's more or less how it's been ever since. Um, Unless you've seen the movie Seven recently, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, you probably can't name all the the seven deadly sins from memory. Uh, But some people do use the the acronym Ape Legs to remember it. Anger, 
pride, envy, lust, gluttony, greed, and sloth, which doesn't actually spell ape legs, um, but it's close. And I suppose that's helpful in and of itself. But as you look at this list, right, it's important to note these are not the most terrible things of which humanity is capable. Um, Political tyranny, ethnic hatred, rape, the abuse of children, all these are certainly more terrible. All these are more destructive. But that's kind of the point because the seven deadly sins are not the worst sins. They're the most common ones. They're the most ordinary. They're the ones that are most likely to get you. They're not the deepest pit, you might say, but they're the widest road. One of the ironies is that Evagrius came up with this list while he was living in a monastery in the desert. He and a group of other monks wanted to separate themselves from the world to avoid its temptations, but they found that these seven things followed them even into the most remote places. They couldn't get away from them. So universal are these temptations. A few years ago, there was a a TED radio hour devoted to the seven deadly sins. Guy Raz, who was the uh, host at the time, I don't think he's the host anymore, but he was the host at the time. He he said that he and his um, team, uh, they were doing research for the show, they went down a bit of an internet rabbit hole with references to the seven deadly sins all over the place. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories that claim many of our most beloved television and film characters are based on the seven deadly sins. Case in point, Gilligan's Island. Some of you may be old enough to remember the show, but the idea is Gilligan represents sloth. The skipper is anger. Ginger, of course, is lust. The professor is pride. Marianne is envy, who's always playing, you know, second fiddle to Ginger. Thurston Howell III is greed. His wife, Lovey, is gluttony. Or so the theory goes. And uh, you watch the show, it all kind of sounds plausible. And there's other theories like this. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, SpongeBob SquarePants, the cast of Friends, Winnie the Pooh, all been speculated about as metaphors for the seven deadly sins. Now, it's important to say these are conspiracy theories. None of the respective writers or directors have confirmed these connections. But even so, perhaps that's why these characters work so well. We see a part of ourselves in them or at least the seeds of things to which we're all prone. The early church believed that because these sins were so common, it made them the most deadly. They may not be the worst sins, but they tend to be the first steps on a more destructive journey. Adultery begins with lust. No one commits murder without first giving themselves to anger or to greed. They are the gateway drugs, if you will, to worse addictions. And when the old theologians talked about these, they didn't sound like Pharisees scrupulously examining the law. Rather, they sounded like doctors diagnosing maladies, trying to restore people to health. The Apostle Peter tells us that sin wages a war against your soul. Do you hear that? Sin wages war against your soul. And so the goal in talking about these things is not to heap on shame, but to help you with the care of your soul, to help you experience more of the joy and freedom that our creator intends for us. There's one other image that I'd like to 
uh, have you keep in your mind, not just today, but throughout the entirety of this series. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know what sin does? It cracks the cisterns of your heart. Sin pokes holes in your life through which the good life, the abundant life, leaks out. And that's why all of this is so important. That's why we're taking time during the season of Lent, which begins on Wednesday, to talk about this. As John Owen has said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so today we're going to start this series by talking about anger. And as we think about this concept of anger and this list of proverbs that you have printed for you in your bulletin, we're going to talk about the danger of anger, talk about the place of anger, and then finally the healing of anger. All right, so first, the danger of anger. Frederick Buechner, uh, the novelist, he, he wrote this. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last, last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger is terribly destructive terribly dangerous. It damages the people around you. The third little proverb in your list there, Proverbs verse, uh, or chapter 15, verse 18, it says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Angry words stir up strife. They cause Contention, they rise uh, the heat, the temperature level in the room. We throw around harsh words like weapons, and in the process, we wound people. We damage relationships. When you read the New Testament, it's pretty amazing, actually, to see how much of Paul's letters are devoted to helping people get along with each other. There's warning after warning about quarrelsome people. Every list of qualification for leaders in the New Testament mentions something about this. They have to be gentle. They can't be harsh. They can't be quarrelsome. Why? It stirs up strife. It wrecks community. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Proverbs 19.19 puts it, a man of great wrath. Hot-tempered man, a man of great wrath. This is somebody who's habitually abrasive, critical, ungenerous, dealing with people in a harsh manner. They're seldom affirming, usually undiplomatic. They're prone to harsh language and cutting humor. They bristle easily when contradicted. What's behind all this unattractive behavior? It's the undercurrent of anger, like a hidden underground stream. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, which is not in your list. I didn't quite work it in there uh, before the bulletins were printed this morning. But here's what Proverbs 12, verse 18 says. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words, angry words, slashing words. And, and think about the metaphor. 
They pierce like a sword. Now, if you put a sword into someone and pull it out, well, you can pull out the sword, but you can't pull out the wound, can you? And even if the person survives, the scar is there forever. And so it is with words, a harsh and angry word. Even if you take it back right away, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle, can you? Angry, rash, harsh words can do a ton of damage to a relationship, to a community. There's a great passage in Wendell Berry's novel, uh, Jaber Crow, which is describing the wrath of a woman named Cecilia Overhold. It said that she could fill a room with hate just by walking in. And she disdained everybody in the town of Port William, Kentucky, but she despised Jaber Crow in particular. And this is what the character Jaber Crow says about her. He says, people generally suppose that they don't understand one another very well. And that is true, they don't. But some things they communicate easily and fully. Anger and contempt and hatred leap from one another, from one heart to another, like fire and dry grass. The revelations of love are never complete or clear, not in this world. Love is slow and accumulating, and no matter how large or high it grows, it falls short. Love comprehends the world, though we don't comprehend it. But hate comes off in slices, clear and whole, self-explanatory, you might say. You can hate people completely and kill them in an instant. Cecilia knew how to deliver the killing look and the killing refusal to look. She could give the tiniest little snub that would cause your soul to fester with self-doubt and self-justification and anger. And these were the things she could pass along to you because all of them were festering in her. A hot-tempered man or hot-tempered woman stirs up strife. It damages community. But anger, secondly, it damages you. Right? If you hold on to anger, it poisons your own life. The very first proverb in your list, Proverbs 14, verse 29 and 30, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Notice the contrast there, right? A tranquil heart on the one hand, rotting bones on the other. Some of the doctors here probably can tell you more about this, right? But the, the anger, rage, wrath can have serious effects on your body. In fact, the prevailing notion now I understand is that it's even worse for you than anxiety. What rage can do to you physically over time is worse even than anxiety can. Anger eats you up. We talk like that, right? We talk about our blood boiling, our blood pressure rising because we know being given over to anger is self-destructive. It's not just your body, it's your mind and your soul. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. That's wisdom, right? Great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And I bet most of us know what this is like, right? You've had an experience, I would bet, where you have been really angry and then you cool off after a a bit, and you, you think back to what you did when you were in the midst of your anger, how you acted, and you feel like a fool. Tim Keller says, you know, do you know why you feel like a fool? Because you were a fool, right, in those moments. I mean, that, that's what the proverb says, right? When anger comes, right, he who has a hasty temper exalts folly, acts 
like a fool. When anger controls you, you turn into a fool. It distorts the way you see things. You blow things out of proportion. Your response is no longer commensurate to the offense. It clouds your wisdom. It poisons your motives. Proverbs 19.19, right in the middle of your list. says, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty. For if you deliver him, you only have to do it again. The first clause there literally says, in Hebrew, it says, the angry person carries around punishment. Now, what does that mean? It means that the loss of temper carries with it its own consequences. You carry around your consequences. You speak harshly to others, and people don't want to share with you anymore, right? There's a law. That's a consequence. It's a loss of intimacy. You blow up at others. There's a loss of trust. People feel like they're walking on eggshells around you. That's a consequence. You tear others down. Pretty soon, people stop coming around you. That's a consequence. The second clause, if you deliver him, you only have to do it again. It means that people who are prone to anger are always getting themselves into new trouble. As one commentator says, they are their own worst enemy. Anger damages others. It damages you. The third thing to note is that anger tends to grow. That is, it doesn't just stay anger. You water it enough, it tends to grow. It becomes other things. The last proverb in your list, Proverbs 29, 22, one given to anger causes much transgression. No other sinful emotions lead to so much violence and literally to so many dead bodies. Jesus makes this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where he said, You have heard it said, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, some people think that Jesus is exaggerating here in order to make a point. I don't think so. I think Jesus wants to protect us by driving home the point that all of the worst evils in the world begin in germ form in your heart. I mean, think about, just a way of analogy for a second, think about an acorn, right? It's really small. But imagine what's packed into that little acorn, right? The whole oak tree It's packed into the seed, even though it doesn't look anything like a tree, right, when you look at it. But under the right conditions, an acorn can grow into a giant. If it's out in the middle of the desert, no water, no, uh, not the right conditions, right, the acorn won't grow. But in the right soil, with the right water, with the right time, it balloons in growth. What's the difference between a murderer and you? His acorn got watered just right. Maybe yours did not. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. The seed of the worst horrors begin just like that, as a seed. 
if you allow anger to fester in your heart, if you've fantasized about how you'd beat somebody down if you could, if you shred them verbally in front of your co-workers, if you've rolled your eyes and hated others because of their politics or race, status, dress, education, or even the harsh ways that they've treated you, then beware. You're watering something dark inside your own heart that is moving in the direction of violence and dehumanization and abuse. The danger of anger damages others, it wrecks community, it damages you, it poisons your soul, and it tends to grow. Secondly, let's talk about the place of anger. Because anger can't be all bad, can it? I mean, anger's not all bad. I mean, after all, the scriptures tell us that God is a, a God of wrath. God is a God of judgment. Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells us, he exhorts us, he says, be angry. And do not sin. In other words, there is a time and a way that we, as followers of Jesus, should be angry. And it's possible to do so, Paul says, without sinning. To understand how this is the case, we have to think about what anger is fundamentally. In his little devotional on the book of Proverbs, Tim Keller defines anger this way. And I think it's a really helpful definition. He says, anger is energy released to defend something you love. Anger is energy released to defend something you love. And when we talk about righteous anger, this is what we mean, isn't it? Energy released to defend something you love. You'd be right to be angry when your kids are attacked. When we see injustice, we should be angry. When we see poverty and racism and violence, we should get angry. When life is not valued, in fact, when life is destroyed, we should be angry. John Stott put it this way. He said, there is such a thing as Christian anger. And too few Christians either feel or express it. Indeed, when we fail to do so, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. If God hates evil, if he gets angry, then we should too. And think about Jesus, right? There are times that Jesus got very angry. John chapter 2, he's angry at the money changers in the temple. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is angry with the religious leaders who are heaping heavy burdens upon the people. John chapter 11, at the grave of Lazarus, he's angry at death itself. Jesus is angry precisely because he is a man of love, perfect love. Because anger is energy released to defend something you love. Jesus was angry, but he was without sin. And John Chrysostom, fourth century Archbishop of Constantinople, he sums this up perfectly, I think. John Chrysostom said this. He said, he that is angry without cause sins. But he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. Now that seems like a pretty uh, narrow thread, right? This is a, a narrow way to, to walk. How do we think about this? What do we do about this? What's the right way to... Think about anger, to employ anger even. Proverbs 16 gives us a little hint. It's the fourth one in your list there. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, 
He who rules a spirit than he who takes a city. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You see, real virtue is not no anger. That's not the goal, to get rid of anger entirely for all the reasons we just described. Real virtue is not no anger, nor is it sort of blowing up in anger. It's not uh, just venting your anger. It's not thinking that the most authentic thing is to always express your anger when it comes. So it's not no anger, and it's not blowing up in anger, but real virtue is slow anger. And isn't that what God is like? Brian began our service by reading from Exodus chapter 34. It's where God's revealing himself to Moses. The glory of God comes over Moses. And then in Exodus 34, verse 6, God reveals himself. And he says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The goal is not no anger, nor is it just giving vents to your anger but slow anger. So be angry, but be careful. If we're honest, right, the lion's share of most of our anger, I think I'm not alone in this, the lion's share of most of our anger has very little to do with righteousness. Our anger is very often a matter of pride or bitterness rather than a desire for God's glory or a desire to protect others. When we get angry at our kids, it's often not because they're doing damage to themselves or damage to others, but it's because they're embarrassing us. Anger rages not out of a love for the truth, but out of a tribal instinct, a desire to belong, a desire to win. And even with righteous anger, we have to be very, very careful because when we nurse it, when we hold on to it, it gets personal. We find ourselves unable to distinguish between hating the sin and hating the sinner. And a good diagnostic question to always be asking ourselves when, when you get angry, right? When, why when I, when I get so angry about this thing? The question to ask is, what am I defending? What am I really defending, right? If that's anger is, is energy released to defend something you love, one way of diagnosing if our anger is healthy and righteous or not is what am I defending when I get so angry? All right, so the danger of anger. There's a place for anger, but let's talk about the healing of anger. What do you do for others? People you encounter that are angry in your life, what do you do for yourself when you find yourself overcome with anger? Well, there's first a call in Scripture to honor everyone. Honor everyone. Now, what does that have to do with anger? Well, it means that when you're angry with someone, you have to run your anger through that grid, right? You have to understand that this grid for honoring everybody, you have to run whatever kind of anger that you're feeling in the moment, you have to run that through the grid of what it means to honor them. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Can you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? Now, if you do, 
That's going to dramatically affect the way that you interact with them, both how you act towards somebody when you're angry with them and also how you act towards somebody when they're angry with you. Always be thinking, what does it mean to honor them? Your second proverb in the list is Proverbs 15, verse 1, where it says, a soft answer, many translations say, a gentle answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Scott Sauls is a pastor in our little family of churches in Nashville. He has a whole book on this verse. It's just called a gentle answer. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's what our neighbors, that's what people who are made in the image of God, people who we want to honor, deserve. That's what we owe them. We owe them a gentle answer. Why? Because it can turn away wrath. It can promote healing. It can bring reconciliation. It can open someone up to the truth, which is our goal after all, right? Our goal is to speak the truth in love. The goal is not just to win an argument. The goal is not just to show somebody they're wrong. The goal is not to destroy someone or eviscerate them or embarrass them. To speak the truth in love. Now, conversely, right, if that's what a gentle answer does, conversely, a harsh word, and by the way, Derek Kidner in his commentary notes it's singular in Hebrew. Even a single harsh word can spark a blazing fire of anger. We have to be careful with our words as we honor Someone. When was the last time you were in an argument? What were your motives? What kind of language did you use? Were you thinking not just about who was right and who was wrong, but were you thinking about how you could honor the other person in front of you? We're thinking about the weight of their glory. So a gentle answer, right? Honor everyone. But the second thing, talking about the healing of anger, don't water the acorn. And the third one down from the bottom, Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. This is about gloating, right? Gloating. Your ideological opponent has a scandal. Temptation is to gloat. Someone who hurt you gets hurt. Tempted to fist pump, right? They're getting their just desserts. But that's watering the seed of anger within us. It displeases the Lord because we're not rejoicing in the truth. We're rejoicing in their humiliation. We're rejoicing in their suffering. Another way we water the seeds of anger. Well, this one's not in your list, but Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24 and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger. You hear that? Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Make no friendship with a man given to anger. In other words, bad company corrupts good character. And this is true of the people that you hang out with, that you spend time with in real life. Make no friendship with a man to anger, that give, who's given to anger, but this also includes the places you frequent on the internet. This includes the channels you surf on the television, right? If you watch things or regularly read things or follow people on social media that regularly stoke rage and anger and malice, this is poison. This is poison to your soul. Listen, I know that most pastors warn about the danger of porn on the internet, which is right to do. 
But let me tell you something. The places that you visit on the internet that perpetuate your anger are at least as dangerous. Yes, lust is one of the seven deadly sins, but so is anger. You have to be careful. Don't water the acorn, the seed of anger within us. Third, love your enemies. Proverbs 25, the second to last in your list. Solomon, the writer of the Proverbs, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now listen to this. This is more than just the command, which will be hard enough not to seek revenge. It's more than just don't seek revenge. This is positively do good to your enemies. Seek the best for your enemies. Bless your enemies. If you watch the Super Bowl, uh, I know a lot of us didn't watch the Super Bowl in protest from the bad officiating in the AFC championship game, which probably did something to our own battle with anger. But if you did watch the Super Bowl, you might have seen the, the He Gets Us commercial focused on Jesus' command to love our enemies. And I'll be honest, I have not been following all the He Gets Us ads very closely. And I understand there might be some legitimate critiques to be made of some of those or maybe the campaign itself. Uh, I don't know. But the critique that I saw the next day, the day after the Super Bowl, about that particular ad, about loving our enemies. And by the way, this critique was coming in from all different sides, right? Far left, far right. This critique was coming in at the campaign saying, listen, this is crazy. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he didn't mean my enemies. He couldn't have meant my enemies because my enemies are truly terrible, truly deplorable. Jesus would not command us not to love my enemies. And listen, I've got to tell you, Jesus meant your enemies. The command is to love your enemies. Jesus meant you're supposed to love and bless your enemies. Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, meant you were to love your enemies. And so did Martin Luther King Jr. In a sermon on Jesus' command to love our enemies, this is what he said. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth quoting in a fuller context. This is what Dr. King said. He said, am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? Maybe in some distant utopia, you say, that ideal will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean, listen to this, this does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. But we shall not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. 
Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory therein will be a double victory. Honor everyone. Don't water the seeds of anger in your life. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. And then finally, the healing of anger comes when we look to Jesus. You know, at the center of the Christian story is God taking on flesh and coming to walk among us. And what do we do in response to him? We mocked him. We lied about him. We beat him. We maligned him. We killed him. All of which were the fruit of our anger. On the cross, Jesus took our undeserved anger. He had done nothing wrong. We raged against him. He took our undeserved anger and he did not respond in kind. We reviled him and he did not revile in return. He took our undeserved anger and then he also took the anger that we deserved. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He stood in our place. He was our substitute. And while all this is happening, Jesus answered with the gentlest word, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now listen, if you're an angry person, a hot-tempered man, a hot-tempered woman, a person who's given to anger, you have to use this in your life. Not just once, but again and again. Keep going back to the cross, reflecting on the cross, meditating on the cross. Jesus took our undeserved anger and the anger that we actually deserved he answered with the gentlest word. If this becomes the controlling story of your life, there can be healing for your anger. Let's just take a moment of quiet reflection, and then we're going to pray a prayer of confession as we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's bow our heads, though. Let's just take a quiet moment, reflect on these things. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.